question of, or the title of our series is A Faith You Can't Explain. That doesn't matter if you're a new church or an old church or anywhere in between, that the heartbeat should be, we want to be people that the gospel drives deeply into our hearts and our lives, into our minds, into our whole being. And we want to be people that share that, not just with our lives, also with our words. And there's some tools we need to do that along the way. And so really starting in the next couple of weeks, we'll get to some more of those tools. And uh, just as a reminder, on, two, on Wednesday mornings from 7 to 8 here, we're, we're kind of going deeper into that topic, hopefully equipping us for some of those uh, encounters with our friends and neighbors and how we can share and live and express our faith uh, well. But this morning we are continuing in uh, the early chapters of Romans Uh, Chapter 2, verses 17 through 29 is really what I'm going to cover this morning. And before I get there, I just want to share this illustration. I was thinking about it as I was thinking really about where we are in the book of Romans and what Paul is doing here. And a a few years ago, Claire and I, we were living actually in Albany, Texas, a little small town a couple hours west of here. We called it West Texas, but probably true West Texans don't. Um, But... You know, we, we spent a couple years there uh, in the town. We loved our time there. I was doing some student ministry. Claire was teaching. And the time came when we felt called to pursue uh, pastoral training. And we moved away to seminary all the way from Albany, Texas, to a little small town in the northeast called Boston. <laughs> and, uh, Sam, if you want to show the moving truck, you know, I, I showed up to go pick up our truck, and they didn't have the size that I needed, so they bumped me up to the larger size. And I had never really driven something so large. And on top of that, we had the trailer on the back that our, one of our cars was actually just going to be riding on. So it was this long truck and this tall truck. And they just give it to you without really doing anything uh, or being qualified to do so. So Claire was in shotgun with me, and we were like, all right, here we go. Pretty smooth ride until we really got more into the northeast. And I remember we were in, in New York, and somehow I'm just following Waze maps, and I end up on this little parkway. And I think I missed some signs that led me to this parkway that were telling me, hey, you're not supposed to be on this. And I start to notice as we're going, these little overhangs start popping up periodically. And, you know, they start high, but then they start getting lower and lower to where I knew the clearance on my truck, but, you know, I was a little cloudy on it. And I began to see signs that were getting really close to the clearance of our truck. And I'll never forget the, the last one that we went under. It was like the exact clearance of our truck. And I was kind of like, I can't get off. There was no exit. I kind of got in the middle lane where it was the widest part or the tallest part. And it was like, hold your breath and hope that it works out. And what ended up happening after that one, we're driving this motorcyclist. You know, all this stuff, I'm pretty slow as you're starting to realize. All this stuff is starting to hit me. We are not supposed to be here. This motorcyclist pulls up next to us and like frantically flags us down and is like, get off the road. Get off. And I'm like, I can't. I got nowhere to go. And, you know, we ended up uh, stopping on the side of the road. We found a way off the highway. And as I said, I began to Google what we ended up on, which was uh, this little parkway in New York. And as I Googled, I saw that you can show the next picture as well. This uh, little parkway was famous for a lot of big trucks thinking that they could make the clearance when in reality they couldn't. Um, pretty scary little deal uh, and obviously one that we learned from. And, and, you know, you might ask why I share that story to intro here, but 
where we are in Romans in these early chapters, really after that famous verse of, you know, the gospel is the power of God for the salvation, after that, Paul turns his attention to a real drastic warning from really the end of 1 to chapter 3. That Charlie last week talked about the person that might feel like, hey, I, I don't know about God, but I'm a pretty good person. Like morality matters to me. I see virtues and values and I live into those things. But Charlie began to unpack why that's not good enough when it comes to standing before a holy and righteous God. But if you can remember even before that, we, we hit that passage at the end of Romans 1 that lists off all these real grievous sins. And, you know, now we're in this part in, in chapter 2 where Paul turns his direction towards the religious. You see, up to this point, the religious would have heard what Paul was saying and say, spot on. You cannot be right before God if you're not connected to God, if you're not in line with his covenant people doing the things necessary. But now Paul says, no, you don't get it. This too is for you. And in many ways, I thought about Paul as this motorcyclist who was like flagging us down saying, hey, you got to exit. You cannot continue on this path, that this path will not end well for you. And, and really, you know, that, it is a heavy deal. I mean, we're spending a few weeks in a really heavy part of Romans, that Paul is making it clear that sin, regardless this morning of your religious affiliation, leaves you liable to God's judgment. And Paul wants to make sure that none of his readers and none of us miss this morning that the religiousness, even the good that we can do in a church, that if we're not careful, we too can kind of follow this trajectory that many of the old covenant people of God and many of the people that Jesus rebuked followed, and he couldn't get through to them. So this morning, uh, there's some weightiness to this, but I hope that what you hear on the other side is an invitation to exit the freeway, invitation into life, spirit-filled life, that Jesus does promise to those that look to him. And so we're going to walk through this passage this morning, really looking at uh, three of the dangers of religion. And again, when I, when I use that word religion, I am using it in that way that Jesus kind of spoke about it. The, these people that would use their religious activity or their standing before God, their duty, right, that I can do this and earn this from God, that anybody that would place their weight in that, that religion in that sense is not a good thing. And so we're going to begin to look at this this morning, and let me just pray and read our text. Father, I ask this morning that you would be gracious to us. That, Lord, as we hear these words that you have penned through Paul, I pray that we are able to receive maybe the ways that we need to be cautious, that we need to allow ourselves to transfer our weight from our religious duty and our goodness, fully resting on the work of Jesus. Holy Spirit, I ask that you would speak through your text this morning to your people, that you would remind us of your love, that you would comfort us, that you might even convict us because you know the path of life for us. I pray this in Jesus' name. Now, if you have your Bible or if you want to look up on the screen, uh, I'm going to read this text, Romans 2, verses 17 through 29. As I said, here Paul goes, starting, you know, in this the, immor the immoral, immoral people to the, the moral people. And now he's turning his attention to the religious people. And he says, but if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law. And if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, 
a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. You then who teach others, do you not teach yourselves? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law, but if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. This is the word of the Lord. So we're going to get into some topics you probably didn't assume we get into this morning, uh, circumcision being one of them. But, but there is a, a logical point that Paul is trying to make in this, but I just want us to work through this text. And, and so right at the beginning, you, you begin to see the dangers of buying into a religious system for your righteousness. And the first point is that it leads to hypocrisy. If you saw in verses 17 through 24, you know, Paul lists these eight things that being a Jewish person were actually good things, that they had the law. God had given them his word. He had made them his covenant people, that they were actually to be a guide and a light to the blind, that God had actually set them apart to be a light to the nations, that these are actually good things. But what he ends up getting to, if you saw that uh, towards the end of that section He says, but you who teach, do you not teach yourself? That what began to happen was hypocrisy began to set in. And you know, for all of us, as we go back, even thinking to the beginning of Romans, right? That verse of saying the gospel is the power of God for those that believe. You see, religion has no power to actually rework us from the inside. It can do a lot exteriorly that we can actually play the part, right? We can sing the songs. We can be present to things. We can really look the part well. But internally, there has begun to become a separation. And Jesus, over and over again, is all about making humans integrated, aligning the heart and our actions, making us whole. But you see, religion puts these things on us to perform outwardly, And they begin to expose the hypocrisy in our lives. And, you know, it's interesting. I I think that for some of us, we we recognize this, that, as I said, we're pretty good at at keeping the public persona well, even though our heart maybe becomes distant and cold to things of God. And so we keep it more internally. We know there's a separation between the claims of a Christian and the conduct of ourselves, or just the conduct or the... Uh, the emotion in our heart and in our minds. But, you know, what's so enticing about religion, and again, this is where Paul is trying to implore people is, what's enticing is religion can actually be used as an idol. That we can use religion to get what we really want from God. That for for often, what, what happens is, if religion is really where we are putting our weight and where we're hoping to get earned from God the things that we desire is, uh, that we begin to um, 
Sorry, I was thinking about something else. Uh, we haven't given up the reins of our life. We have just let God tag along for the ride, and we can begin to misuse our religion for self-advancement without actually turning to God. And, you know, I think yesterday morning, Claire and I were at this funeral of a man who was just a faithful follower of Jesus. And I left so moved by this guy's conduct, you know, that, that he was somebody that really lived out the call of Jesus to love stranger, to be kind, to forgive, to be joyful always, even at the end of his life. And I really did leave just so moved by somebody where they're integrated, where the conduct and the claims of their life are whole. And they read some verses yesterday, you know, some of these famous verses we know of, right? Like Philippians 4, hey, rejoice always. You know, you have other ones in Philippians where it says, hey, Think of other people as more important than yourself, right? So many of the, 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 the conduct claims of Christianity are all about laying down our life for the sake of others. You see, that is not possible. That cannot be done if we are living in this religious fear. It's just not possible. We're far too selfish. We haven't given up the reins of our life to God. We haven't seen the beauty of the self-sacrificial love in Jesus. We're not capable of doing it. So what those claims do is they just burden us. We know we're supposed to act a certain way. Maybe some of us, like I said, can put on that act well, but uh, it's not the joyful love-producing thing that it is supposed to be. Uh, Tim Keller had this quote that I liked. He said, it's possible to trust in Christianity rather than Christ. And Paul is showing us a condition called dead orthodoxy where the basic doctrines of the Bible are accurately subscribed to but do not make any internal difference. There is an intellectual grasp of the gospel, but no internal revolution. And this is what was true of these people that Paul was speaking to. It it hadn't made its way into the deepest parts of their life. You know, it's interesting, just even that little verse of, hey, you who teach others, do you teach yourself? You know, this week I was thinking about it as I was sitting at a red light and the person in front of me, the light turned green and they didn't move. You know, I kind of gave some space to let them go and they didn't move again. Then I honked the horn and then, you know, you get around them and you see like they're on their cell phone. And, you know, you just, your thoughts are like, you know, you're frustrated, you're judging them, you're, you know, you shouldn't be doing that. And then what's interesting is it hit me where I found myself at a red light. I waited till I got to the red light, and, you know, I'm either changing the music or looking at something, and literally the same thing happened to me. I got honked at. You can either play it cool, like, I was totally not looking down at my phone, or your response is just, hey, man, relax. Like, it just turned green. You, you give yourself a lot of grace in those moments. And I think just being in this passage, it actually was like this good reminder to me of, of this is kind of what happens in religion is that, you know, we begin to uh, judge the sins or, you know, equate things in people's life far harsher than we ever do for ourselves. But the gospel flips that upside down. And we're going to talk a little bit more about how it does that. But, you know, it makes us people who look internally. That's why Jesus talks so much about take the log out of your own eye. You know, this is a great challenge in marriage, but it's a great place for that to be lived out to allow God to be able to work on your, your heart in these ways because you've really got to die to self in that way of wanting to always be right or take the log out of your spouse's eye. That will not go well. I will tell you that. And so Paul is warning here that not only does religious systems and living into that, it's, it's this double-edged sword. We, we condemn and judge those who don't live up to the mark, but in reality, we don't live up to the mark as Charlie talked about last week. 
And so what it does, it's why God says that even our righteous acts are filthy rags before God. Because even on our best day, we're not even close. You see, hypocrisy, we could go on and on. I think we know some of the effects in our own life, why it's not a good thing. But religion lived in that way will lead to that. But it doesn't just lead to that. If you look at verses 23 and 24, look what it says. Paul says, you who boast in the law, you dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. You see, it doesn't just lead to hypocrisy. It actually leads to the slander of God's name. I I read this little quote by Dietrich Bonhoeffer this week, and he said that as Christians, the way that we live should make unbelievers want to doubt their disbelief. And I'll just say it one more time. As Christians, the way that we live should make non-believers want to doubt their disbelief in God. What he's saying is that, that our lives should be so not perfect. There should be such a humility and such a love and such a kindness and such a grace that exudes from our lives and as our communal lives together that somebody would say, you know what, I would want that to be true. But you see, what happened in the Old Testament, what happens still today is that as we live into these, you know, religious games and, and play this dance, that what ends up happening is God's name gets defamed. That in the Old Testament, as God's people disobeyed him, he promised and said, hey, if you disobey, there will be consequences. And so if you know some of your Old Testament, the, the people of God lose their land, they lose their kingdom, they're exiled. And the surrounding nations look at the people of God and say, Well, look what happened to them. Look at how they lived. Look at the things that exuded out of them. That God is not the one true God. That couldn't happen. And obviously, what we're going to see is God had a plan from the beginning. It is a beautiful plan, and it's subversive. But the same is true for us as we think about our communal life together, that we have uh, an opportunity to, you know, as Paul says, like the fragrance of Christ going forth from us. But as we live into this religion and this religious systems that we can slander God's name, that our neighbors, our coworkers, the people around us can sniff out and see when our life doesn't match up and it doesn't make God appealing to them. For many of them, it becomes their excuse why they will never actually maybe walk into a church or struggle to wrestle with the claims of God in their life because they've seen it and they don't really like it. And, and ultimately, I think what Paul is doing here and what he continues to do in the Old Testament to this, this portion, again, if you know your Gospels, that Jesus had a lot of problems getting through to because they, they didn't want to believe that they were as unrighteous as the people that were not a part of God's covenant from long ago. They couldn't see themselves on that equal playing field. That Religion still had a hold on their heart. Working things out on their own had a hold on their heart. And ultimately, what the law was meant to do and what when we play that game of religion, what it should make us do is it should make us come to the end of ourselves and realize that we cannot do it. That as we read those claims, right, the Philippian four passages, the the lay down your life, we should stumble up to those and say, God, I cannot do it. I've got too much selfishness. I've got too much control on my life to really give it up. God, I cannot do it. I need your help. That the law ultimately, as Galatians says, was meant to to guide us to Christ. It was never meant to be something that we work our way to God. You know, again, we flip it 
it's not just a gospel thing, it's an Old Testament thing, that God saved his people from the Exodus first, and then he gave them the law. And we flip that, that we believe we've got to live a certain way and act a certain way and manufacture certain things, and then we will get something from God or get what we ultimately long for. The Westminster Larger Catechism, question 96, for those of you that love some of the Reformed tradition, um, you know, was a 17th century document that's really just helpful. It it simplifies some of the Bible into these question and answer formats. And it says uh, about the law, the what uh, speaks of this use and says, what particular use is there is use is there of the moral law to unregenerate men? The moral law is of use to unregenerate men to awaken their consciences, to flee from wrath to come, and to drive them to Christ. You see, it's meant to drive us to Jesus and drive us to the gospel. And, and finally, if you look in that last section, and, and we'll I'll try to do my best here as we get into the section 25 through 29. That, you know, religion, it, it leads us to hypocrisy. It leads us to slandering God's name. But finally, it actually leads us to deception, this false sense of confidence. If you heard in the verses 25 through 29, as Paul is talking about circumcision, you know, law keeping and this covenant sign that God had given his Old Testament people, that those were the two things that, Jews hung their hats on, that these two things are so necessary in order to be righteous before God. And I I was, I've watched, I don't remember how I stumbled upon this YouTube video at some point, but has anybody ever seen these videos or read about stolen valor? Anybody know what I'm talking about? There's this video, there's this guy apparently who, who served as a Marine, and he's gone around, and what he's begin to see is that there's a lot of people who might wear the badge or wear the hat or carry themselves in a way that they served in some branch of the military, when in reality they never did. And I'll never forget the first video I saw was this, this, air, this guy in the airport, he had this specific badge on and this hat on, and I guess a couple of guys who actually served in that came up and, you know, thought they were kind of finding a fellow brother who had been through what they've been through, served in the way that he served. And as they began to just like ask them questions, it wasn't like accusatory stuff. You know, this guy, I think, had got, he's, he'd done this for a long time. He began to answer in a way that sounded knowledgeable, but these guys began to listen and say, well, hold on, this isn't adding up. As you mentioned this specific, you know, place where you train in San Diego, that's true, but what you said about this person or this, that's not true. And you begin to see the guy who has the badge and stuff get uncomfortable and kind of just want to keep hurrying on. The guy's like, oh, hold on, you're not going anywhere. Because it is actually against the law uh, to, to do that. And so this is part of, I think what this guy's mission was, but it it was this wild video where obviously you begin to see it settle on this guy who's been kind of living this lie, but that badge and that, those symbols, it it gave him this sense of carrying himself in a certain way that didn't actually match with reality, that he hadn't served, that he hadn't really given up of himself in the way that those, you know, badge and those symbols represent. Or you think about a police badge, right? You, you, what that constitutes is something that matters, but not in and of itself. It points to something, right? You're called to protect and serve. The badge points past itself to the reality, to the greater thing. And you see what Paul was beginning to get at here is saying, you have been stuck in, in the badge, the sign, the symbol of actual physical circumcision. That you have been circumcised, but that always was intended to point to the reality, the greater thing. 
which was an actual circumcision, a cutting of the heart, of sin being removed from your actual lives, right? This integration. And Paul is arguing that these Israelites have begun to take so much pride in that badge. You know, it's, it would be like a police officer that, you know, feels like that badge for them is power. But that, that badge is meant to, to be of service, that you are somebody who is to serve the community and protect. We, we've heard stories, we've seen the reality where that has been, mis- has been abused, have we not? You lose sight of what it's actually calling you to. And see, the people of God, that badge pointed not to their privilege, but to their responsibility. To be and to live into the covenant people of God, to be a light to the nations. And instead, as what religion does, it actually deceives, it puffs us up, it makes us proud. I think that this uh, little passage in Luke 18 does it no better than I can do. It says, Jesus told this parable, Luke 18, 9 through 14. He told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithe of all that I give. But the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven. But he beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified, rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. You see, that is a person who has begun to move outside of religion and has found themselves at the foot of the cross. I think just, again, illustrating this so well. This was a little quote about religion and the gospel, and I just would ask you to, to hear this. Maybe consider where one of these isn't true of yourself. But religion says, if I obey, God will love me. Gospel says, because God loves me, I can obey. Religion has good and bad people. Gospel has only repentant and unrepentant people. Religion depends on what I do, but gospel depends on what Jesus has done. Religion claims that sanctification justifies me or makes me right for God, right before God. But the gospel claims that you have been made right and now you're enabled to live right, to be sanctified. Religion has the goal to get from God, but gospel has the goal to get to God. Religion sees hardships as punishment for sin. God's finally found me out. He's punishing me. But gospel sees hardships a sanctified affliction. Religion is about me. Gospel is about Jesus. Almost done. Religion, belie- religion believes appearing as a good person is the key, but gospel believes that being honest is the key. Religion has an uncertainty of standing before God, but gospel has certainty based upon the work of Jesus. Religion sees Jesus as the means. Gospel sees Jesus as the end. And religion ends in pride or despair, but gospel ends in humble joy. And, and that ultimately, I think, for, for some of us this morning, again, religion can creep in for those that have placed their faith in Jesus. And I think just one way to check that on yourself, to do a heart check, is to see some of what was read there, but some of the pride that can build up in our, in our hearts. The way that we put people into bad categories or good categories. Right, that for the Jews, they became proud, arrogant. 
But gospel humbles us. It makes us servers. It makes us people who love people. And, and there's a total shift. And I think that that's one way we can check ourselves. And so as we conclude here, I'm going to read this final verse. Verse 29 of the section says, But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. And I think what's beautiful, again, just to close, I know you're probably shocked that I'm going to close talking about circumcision, but this is what the sign actually pointed to. That when the son was circumcised, it, that skin was cut, and it signified sin being cut from them. But it also signified the consequence if they didn't obey. That there was actually a cutting off of you from the covenant community of God. It had this twofold reality. And thirdly, circumcision, blood, I mean, again, not to be too gruesome, but blood is shed, obviously. And from the beginning, that pointed to the reality that blood would have to be shed for sin. And you see, all of this, even from the early pages of Genesis, pointed to Jesus. That we could never live right enough to stay in God's covenant family. That was never the call, even in the Old Testament. It was faith in God. And for us, it's faith in Christ and what he has done. That Jesus was cut off, literally, from the land of the living. That his blood was shed in order for us to be made right with God, that everything he has done, we're going to continue to hit this. I hope you get tired of it. Everything he has done, what is true of him is true of you if you're in Christ. So stop working it out. It's what Paul's trying to say. Would you exit off the path and come into the fullness of life? And that's why he says the law kills, but the spirit gives life. We need to learn what it is to walk by the spirit of God. And so again, for some of us, you, you think about that cutting off that we need. Romans 8, if you want to spend some time in an uplifting passage this week, spend some time in Romans 8. It's where Paul drives at what it means to be set free from the law and flesh and religion and live in the spirit. It starts with Christ, but then it begins as we walk with him, applying that gospel more and more to our life. And so this morning, I hope that as we... Get to Romans 3, you know, Charlie's going to close us in this section on sin as we lead into the righteousness and, and living into more and fully what it means and how we can share this with our neighbors. But it's good to take an assessment on self as Paul asks those that might tend towards the self-righteous works that we need to be drawn back away from hypocrisy, away from the slander of God's name and away from being deceived by our works and look to Christ alone. Let us pray this morning. Father, thank you for your word that does cut. That if we come across the scripture and don't find ourselves at times convicted or challenged, then we might not be reading it right. God, that there is a reality that we can't live up to. Even as we think of the Sermon on the Mount, as Jesus pushed the boundary of what it meant to be lawful, not just don't do this, but don't do it in your heart. That God, we read that and say, I don't have it in me. And Father, we know that's what you want us to come to. You want us to come to the end of ourselves. That we might look to Jesus, the work that he's done, the love that you have for us, 
and that we might begin to be those sort of people in that sort of community that makes people want to doubt their doubt in you. So as we come to the table this morning, which is also a sign and a symbol, it's a beautiful thing. For the one that has rested in Christ, this is a reminder, a means of grace to restore us again that your blood and your body has been given for us. Help us to receive that in faith this morning, to walk and live in the spirit. We need you, God. And so we pray and ask this all in the strong name of Jesus. From the night that